Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. We read Luke's account of the transfiguration from chapter 9, beginning at verse 28. About eight days after he said these words, Jesus took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. While he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothing became dazzling white. Just then, two men, Moses and Elijah, were talking with him. They appeared in glory and were talking about his departure, which he was going to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were weighed down with sleep, but when they were completely awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not realize what he was saying. While he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. They were afraid as they went into the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, they found Jesus alone. They kept the secret and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. This is the gospel of our Lord, we pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Your fellow redeemed friends in Christ Jesus, who is the radiance of God's glory, I'm pretty confident that almost all of us in here, even our Sunday school age kids, would be able to explain to a non-Christian what important days in the Christian church here like Christmas and Good Friday and Easter Sunday are all about. I think just about anyone in here could tell us that Christmas is when Jesus was born, Good Friday was when Jesus died, and Easter Sunday is when Jesus rose again from the dead. But what if someone asked you to explain this day? Transfiguration Sunday, what would you explain about it? What would you say about it? What's the significance of this day? Sadly, many Christian churches in our country and our world don't celebrate or even recognize Transfiguration anymore for reasons that we will briefly touch on today. But just because churches don't observe it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Jesus was transfigured. There's no denying that. But what does it mean? Why was Jesus transfigured? That's the question that Luke's Gospel will answer for us today. Throughout the Epiphany season, we've, we've noted time and again that Jesus' miracles point to, to one specific thing. And maybe you've heard me say in Bible class before, the miracles are never really about the miracles. The miracles are rather signs or signposts pointing us to something else. And that's not just something that I picked up at the seminary. That's not just a Lutheran idea. That is Scripture itself. John, near the end of his Gospel, writes this, Jesus, in the presence of his disciples, did many other miraculous signs that are not written in this book. But these, namely these miracles, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So all of the miracles that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry, while they were varied and there were different things that he did, healing and, and, and turning water into wine and all of those things, they are all meant to focus us on this single fact. Jesus is the Son of God. 
That's the takeaway that we should take away from, from every miracle, especially transfiguration, the one and only time when Jesus fully revealed His deity on earth. Unfortunately, we are often told today that miracles don't happen. That there's no way that the stories that are recorded in Scripture about Jesus feeding 5,000 people with a young boy's lunch or, or calming a stormy sea with only a word or, or with a touch, being able to heal somebody who had been sick for years and decades. We're told, that stuff can't happen. And on top of that, 21st century enlightened scientific understanding people will never buy that. That doesn't follow the science. These miracles could never have happened. What do you do with them, though? If you're going to claim to be a Christian, what do you do with these miracles? You can't just pretend they don't exist. They've been recorded in the pages of Scripture for 2,000 years. You can't just ignore them. You can't cut them out either, can you? If you cut out Jesus' miracles, what are you left with? You're left with the story of a poor, illegitimate Jewish boy who kind of spoke eloquently and, and, and started to gather a following, but then he, he ticked off the wrong people and got himself killed. Well, that's not really a story of good news. There's no salvation for anyone in a story like that. So what do you do with the miracles then? If you, if you come to them with the presupposition that these aren't real, that, that these never happen. Well, false teachers today will generally do what the media often does. You know, the media, both on the left and on the right, they will take any given story and they will reframe it to, to fit their chosen narrative. And so what false teachers will do then is they will take a, a feeding miracle, like the feeding of the 5,000, and, and they'll say, well, this wasn't really a miracle. It's just a story in which Jesus is telling us you need to take care of the hungry. If, if at all possible, a church should set up their own food pantry. Or you'll ta they'll take a healing miracle. Jesus touching someone and, and curing their blindness or their deafness. And they'll say, see, that's, that's a call to us to be socially aware of people who are sick. That we should be supportive of policies that, that provide insurance, health insurance for all people. That the church should be busy trying to help people out physically in whatever way they can. Or, or they'll take the calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee and say, well, obviously this, this didn't happen. No one can calm a storm with just a word. But, but what Jesus is telling us here is to be, to be ecologically aware, to be careful about how many carbon emissions we're putting out, to, to be concerned with climate change. And, and so they, they repackage, they reframe these miracle stories not as, as real historical events, but as, as calls to, to the church to be socially mindful and socially aware and to, to help the world. And, and that narrative is called the social gospel. Now, just in describing those three twistings of the, the words of Scripture, you may have noticed something lacking when that's your message for the world. What's lacking? Not really any sin or grace involved there, right? It's just about healing society's ills. There's, there's a lot of law 
If you've ever listened to a social gospel sermon, there is a lot of law. You must go out there and make this world a better place. It's up to you to bring heaven here on earth, which isn't that ironic that that's exactly what Peter was trying to do here. He wanted to set up camp. He wanted to keep heaven on earth. He looked at Moses and Elijah and Jesus in his glory and said, this is pretty good. I like this. Let's keep this here. He didn't want to go back down the mountain where he would witness Jesus' suffering and death. There's a lot of law in the social gospel, but there's no, ironically, gospel in the social gospel. There's no real good news when all you're talking about is our responsibility as sinful human beings to try to bring about a utopia on earth. What could the good news possibly be? People have been trying to create utopia heaven on earth forever. And it's never worked. Not a single time. While it is true that most of Jesus' miracles did help real people with real problems and real issues and really made them better, how do you apply the social gospel to today, to the, the transfiguration? What's the, the social message here? What, what should be on your minds as you walk out those doors? Okay, this miracle is showing me how to make the world better in this way. How, how do you even spin it that way? You really can't, can you? Because while this was a miracle, clearly it was, right? Jesus' face changed. It glowed. His clothes became dazzling white. The heavens opened and God spoke from heaven. Moses and Elijah were there. This was certainly a miraculous event. But who did it help? How many blind people regained their sight? How many stormy seas were calmed? How many people were fed? What did this miracle do at all? Well, it proved, like all the other miracles do, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It confirmed, it confirmed to the disciples the voice that they heard from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love, it, it, it confirmed it with their eyes. So they put the two together, what they saw and what they heard. This Jesus is the son of God. And they should listen to him. That is what this miracle did. How does that become a call for social awareness or social justice or helping those in our world today who are sick or, in, or hungry? There's just no way to twist this miracle that way. And so, what they do, and it's become acceptable in large segments of Christianity to say, well, this one, yeah, it's problematic. There's not a lot of people being helped in this miracle. So, we'll put it in a different category. We'll call it a myth. You know, these difficult ones that don't really seem to apply today, like the six-day creation or the virgin birth or this one, the transfiguration, We'll just put that into the category of myth. These were just things that were made up by the early Christian church to try to pump up Jesus' reputation so that people would listen to and take seriously his social gospel message. That's how it's twisted today. Now, teachers today think that's brilliant, that's innovative, that they can, they can take something that is clearly miraculous and say, here's how we explain that in a way that matches up with our scientific understanding today. But it's clear that that's nothing new. 
There's nothing new about twisting Scripture. There's nothing new about saying this didn't really happen. Apparently, it was happening already in the, in the days of the apostles. Peter had to defend. He, he, in our second lesson, he had to defend his teaching and the other apostles' teaching, saying, we did not make this up. We saw it. These are his words. To be sure, we were not following cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the powerful majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from within the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We heard this voice which came out of heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's not uncertain. He knows what he saw and heard. He knows that he saw Jesus transfigured before his eyes and heard the voice from heaven declare this to be the Son of God. And he knew what it meant. Maybe he didn't know at the time, but now as he's writing years, decades later, he knows this miracle proves once and for all that Jesus is the Son of God and it should do the same for us. Prove Jesus' identity beyond all shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. Because when we have that understanding, then, then we'll really be prepared for Lent. We'll be prepared to leave this mountain and follow Jesus on his dark passion in the days of Lent. It's important that we have Jesus' identity nailed down. Because if you don't know who Jesus is, you can't really understand what he came to do. Now, Luke reports that Jesus said these things or eight days after he said these words. That's when the transfiguration happened. What, what words did Jesus speak eight days earlier? These words. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law. He must be killed and be raised on the third day. It's no coincidence then that when Moses and Elijah appeared, what were they talking to Jesus about? His departure. The Greek word is actually exodus. His exiting the scene. His exiting of the world. Of course, we know the rest of the story through his suffering and death. Now, normally this would be a pretty alarming conversation to overhear, right? If, if someone you loved, a friend or family member, came to you and, and started talking about their death, you would think, are you suicidal? What's wrong? Are you, are you in a depression? We would think it's a, a cry for help if you're talking about your own death this way. But for Jesus to talk with Moses and Elijah about his impending death couldn't be any more fitting. Everything that the Lord had inspired Moses and Elijah to preach and to write down for, for us, for posterity, it all led to this one man and this period in time. The, the Messiah that God sent to suffer for the sins of the world. But you won't understand that unless you also put together that piece that this is the Son of God because otherwise, all, it's just a tragic accident. It's just a bad disciple, Judas, making a bad decision to some bad men and selling Jesus over to them. But when you realize that this is not just a man, this is a son of God, then you can understand this was no accident. And that's part of the reason Moses and Elijah were there too. This is not a coincidence. We've been testifying to this for hundreds, thousands of years. Their eyewitness testimony tells them. This Jesus is the son of God who came to take away 
the sins of the world, and because He is the Son of God, His blood is precious enough to pay for each and every sin. Your sins and mine, once and for all. We need to keep that in mind. And and in that light, this miracle was really not so much for Jesus as it was for the three disciples and, and for us. You know how when you stare at a bright light, that, that image gets emblazoned on your cornea? I think that's the point here. Jesus wanted to, the disciples to have this image of him in all of his glory emblazoned on their minds because, let's be honest, there we're going to see some really terrible things. They are going to see Jesus fall on his face in the Garden of Gethsemane, agonizing over the horrors that he knew lay in his future. They would see him betrayed. They would see him arrested. They would abandon him just when he needed them most. They would see him beaten and mocked and whipped and finally hauled out to a place called Golgotha and nailed to a tree. They would see all of these awful things, but they needed to keep this picture in the back of their minds. This can't be an accident. This is the Son of God. All of this suffering, all of this death, all of this gore and all of this blood, it was part of God's plan all along. It was part of His plan to save us from our sins. We need to keep that in our minds as we enter the season of Lent too because we're going to see some pretty horrible things. First, we're going to look into the mirror of the law and see the horrible things that live in our own hearts and lives. With Ash Wednesday, we remember that we are dust, and to dust we will return. And it's not pleasant to consider that thought, is it? You ever taken a moment to to seriously consider? You're going to be dead someday. And so are your children. It kind of changes the way you look at the world, doesn't it? Shows you what's truly important to consider that according to the law, You are under God's curse, and you deserve to not only die in this life, but die eternally in hell. But as we're considering those awful things during the season of Lent, keep this picture in your mind, emblazoned on your memory, that this Jesus really is who He claimed to be, the Son of God whose blood is precious enough to save us from our sins, to open up the gate to eternal life. And that's really the final gift that transfiguration gives to us today. That preview of the glory that is to come. Moses and Elijah are there. It's really incredible. They had been dead for for hundreds of years. Moses had been dead for 1,400 years. The Lord had swept Elijah off the face of the earth in a whirlwind 700 years earlier. This view of heaven is again a testimony against any kind of social gospel. Because there's no hope. There's no gospel in the social gospel. There's no good news in you and I feeling pressed and obligated to go out and make this world a better place. All you're going to do is come back here week after week with your head down because you'll have to admit, I, as much as I tried, I haven't made this world a better place. I can't even fix the problems in my own life, much less, much less fix the world for seven, other, seven billion other people. 
There's no hope in a church that thinks that its job is to feed the hungry. There's no hope in a church that thinks that its job is to heal the sick because we can't do it. There's no hope in a church that is focused on all of these social and political issues because we can't solve them. Again, that's what Peter was trying to do. Peter was trying to make heaven on earth, keep heaven on earth. And it's interesting, in each of the three Gospels that record the transfiguration, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus doesn't even dignify his request with a response. It's almost as if Jesus looks at him and says, that's the dumbest suggestion I've ever heard. Because Why? Because if Jesus stayed on that mountain, we would all be damned. That's what Peter didn't understand yet at this point, that Jesus had to leave that mountain so that he could open heaven for us. There will never be a heaven on earth. But Jesus came down out of heaven to open it up for us. This preview of, of heaven is really amazing, right? So, so I think it teaches us two main things that are important to keep in mind. Number one, heaven is real. Elijah and Moses, they're there in glory with Jesus. So as you consider the loved ones that you have lost, they're not gone. Don't wish that they were back because right now they are standing and walking and talking in glory with Jesus. Don't feel bad for them. Maybe be a little jealous of them because they are already in the glory that the Lord came to win for all of us. Secondly, may this view of heaven's glory, this preview of heaven's glory, comfort you on the hard days of life. Help you put your life in a proper perspective. The, the 70 or 80 years that we get here, if we have the strength, there's just a drop in a bucket compared to the ocean of glory that awaits us for Jesus' sake in heaven. May that, that hope, that thought, that comfort, that assurance, this view of heaven's glory, may it comfort you when you are walking through your own personal days in the shadow of the valley of death knowing that while there will never be a heaven on earth, you will be in heaven forever with Jesus. There's no hope and there's no gospel in the this, in this social gospel. Jesus was transfigured. Eyewitness proof, a voice from heaven assuring us that He is who He claimed to be. The transfiguration is proof of Jesus' deity. It's also... Uh, prediction, it prepares us for his death so that we understand why did all of these horrible things have to happen. It's also a preview of heaven. May the Holy Spirit create faith in our hearts to truly believe that this really happened so that one day you and I can also stand with Moses and Elijah and Peter, James and John in heaven's glory and say, Master, it's good for us to be here. Amen.